This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Flat Out Farno, you're Laddie H, host of Flat Out Pride on your Free FM dial. If you're a Waikato local with an idea for your own show, Free FM would love to hear from you. Check out our website, freefm.org.nz, or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Kia ora everyone, you're listening to the locals on Free FM 89.0, called Dan Armstrong Tokuengua. Now the country is starting to mark the 40th anniversary of the 1981 Springbok Tour a critical period in the development of modern Aotearoa New Zealand. Now, a couple years ago, I interviewed Dame Marilyn Waring, a passionate activist and the MP for Waipa. Uh, so I thought it would be a good idea just to bring back that episode, uh, because she's a pretty amazing figure, uh, not just within her activism around the tour, uh, but in general. So please enjoy. This is The Locals, and this is Dame Marilyn Waring. Born on the 7th of October 1952, Marilyn Joy Waring would start her life out in Naruawahia. With a busy childhood filled with sport and reading, a young Marilyn would find her way to Victoria University to study political science, on top of being a musician. After some study in England, Marilyn would eventually find herself a researcher's position in Parliament. At the same time this was all happening, Marilyn was active in a number of campaigns and organisations such as the Women's Electoral Lobby, and while not intending to be a politician, decided to put her name forward. One of the things that was obvious when you're working in Parliament buildings is that all the political parties said, oh yes, we'd love to have more women, but um, manifestly didn't really want more women. <laughs> uh, however... This, this electorate of Raglan was going to be the very last electorate for selection in 1975 where National could select a woman who would get into Parliament. And they didn't have anybody at all in their caucus from 72 to 75. 75 was International Women's Year. They looked pretty silly, um, not even being able to front one candidate who would win. And that may have played some part uh, in that selection. I think it did, but I'm sure it wasn't to the forefront of the whole 135 National Party voters that night. Um, so submitting my nomination was a form of feminist activism to demonstrate that even when women uh, applied, they didn't get selected. So it wasn't, oh, here I go to be an MP. I couldn't have foreseen at all that Raglan would select me. I mean, it was historic. It was very out of the ordinary. Now, Marilyn's act of feminist protest didn't have the ending she initially thought it would, as she made it through pre-selection and selection and the inevitable election in 1975 when she was elected to the seat of Raglan. During this process, Marilyn had met Catherine O'Regan, a party delegate, and had struck up a really strong friendship, and that would continue, with Catherine going on to work for Marilyn. 
1970s New Zealand was a completely different place. New Zealand had experienced one oil crisis in 1973, with a second to follow in 79. All a while, a number of traditionally downtrodden people were finding their voice and advocating for their rights. For a socially and economically aware Marilyn, these were pressing issues when she started representing the area. Well, Sir Douglas Carter had represented Raglan, I think, for 12 or 15 years. He'd been Minister of Agriculture. In 1975, there was a lot of concern about what was happening to the economy. You know, loads of that is imported internationally. But New Zealand was incredibly inefficient. You just cannot imagine how unbelievably inefficient it was. And it was subsidised to the hilt, especially agriculture. And there were good people in the National Party who realised that both of those things were really stupid. While Marilyn would make it into Parliament, she would be in a building where she had extremely few female politician peers. This was not a new custom for Parliament. Yes, uh, 1975, I was part of the National Caucus, That became the government. There were only two women in the caucus, Colleen Dew from Littleton and myself. We were the 14th and the 15th women members of parliament elected. We were only the fifth and the sixth women members of parliament in the National Party. And in fact, If you have a look at the history of women MPs, they've nearly always been debased by um, a a quick definer. So, for example, when I entered Parliament, women would be swept away by, oh, eight out of 13 of them won by-elections. Or they'd be swept away by, oh, three of them were widows and three of them were daughters. Like, these women had no personality, no integrity, no enormous life experience that prepared them for doing this work better than most men in the place. Um, Very, very few of the women who came before us trod the line. Um, Both, um, so for example, Mary Grigg and Mary Drever worked across the floor of the house together all the time. Mary Drever said she'd support any woman candidate, whatever party she'd get, they came from, and got severely reprimanded by the party. Um, and Rona Stevenson said it all those many years later, when she was the MP for Taupo, and didn't get reprimanded by the party. Um, Mabel Howard had had nothing to do with the National Party when she won a by-election in the Waikato. She'd been on the hospital board for a long time. She was deputy mayor, but she'd never had a party affiliation. She worked very hard together with Iriaka Ratana, especially across the floor of the house, and with Mabel Howard. Uh, So the history of women who'd been elected to the New Zealand parliament were not good little party girls, whatever others might have like to think. And so as far as I was concerned, 
I was acting in the spirit of all of those who went before me as I then proceeded to spend time representing Raglan and representing Waipa. I was the only woman member of parliament in the North Island from 1975 to 1981. That's a lot of women to worry about. Sorry, that's... Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the only woman member of parliament in the National Party caucus from 1978 to 1981. It doesn't seem like in a lifetime that it could have been so crude and dreadful, right? That's another world away. Yeah, it is another world. Luckily, we get edited out by astonishment. (laughs) Well, no, I think it's wonderful if we leave it in. (laughs) Given this reality, I can't even imagine the pressure that she was under. Probably like it was for Fittiturikatani Sullivan for her entire um, parliamentary period because her Māori seat was the entirety of the South Island for as long as she was an MP. Um, So, yeah, superhuman... uh, requirements, uh, expectations, um, and also you've got to remember this all in a highly mobilised women's movement now. You, I think and there were more than 150 women's organisations affiliated to the National Council of Women in the mid to late 70s. Um, and they were everywhere. And they wrote to me all the time, asked me to go and assist them, used me as a money raiser, advocated, lobbied, but overwhelmingly taught me, taught me about women's lives, you know. Um, And one of the really important things that I had to Um, really ask of them was don't just tell me please tell your local MP so that they can't stand up in the government caucus and say what a load of bulldust nobody's ever told me this Um, and as a result of that I got some very good colleagues in caucus people who really listen to those women I can think of somebody like Tony Friedlander for example um, who became a very strong advocate Jim McClay was another, so, you know, both rural and urban. Younger, obviously. It, it, truly, it was, I think, probably like being one of those women whose partner belittles them every day. Because every day that you got up to go to work, every day, you would her here deliberate or subconscious demeaning characterizations of women every day all day and how much of that was coming from your own party oh well obviously or, most of it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh well and no this little short angry guy well yes yes but also across the floor of the house yeah. you know i it, People would say to me, well, what are you doing in the National Party? And I'd say, have you ever sat and just looked at them all in Parliament? You know, if you're going to be there, be in the government. Because wherever you are, it's a crippling waste of time. Um, If you're not, 
in the government and you can't be pressing your own ministers. Um, and as well, at that stage, the Labour Party had a, a rule in their constitution, Rule 242, that said if I'm selected as either in those days candidate for national or local politics, I will at all times and on all occasions vote in accordance with the majority of the caucus. Well, when you looked at what that looked like, old white men, it like I could at least cross the floor from where I was sitting, whereas I didn't even have that option from the other side. In her second term, Marilyn would be appointed to the chair of the Public Expenditure Committee a somewhat ignored part of the government that looked at some of the fundamental aspects of spending. And for an intellectual mind, it was an opportunity to pursue transparency and a bit of common sense in government. Look, the things we managed to achieve seem microcosmic, but actually they were substantial. The first was to um, introduce recording of proceedings, because when we didn't have recording of proceedings, bureaucrats would then deny they'd said something to us. So recording and transcription of proceedings. I was never able to get the media admitted, though I I tried to do that twice. Um, Fortunately, we had a terrific office of the Controller and Auditor General. Fred Shales um, was in that position. Uh, and um, they had recently done a, a major report on accountability in the public service, and Jeff Chapman was still there then. And so we started doing re- key investigations of trying to separate trading operations of departments, ministries, agencies from delivery really fundamental things like, are all the programs that you're operating um, covered by the legislation which established this agency? Well, you've got no idea how many were running, you know, with uh, nothing really to do with the statute. Such fundamental things. $800 million in agricultural subsidies with no improvement in production. What the hell is this about? You know, and there were so many things wrong with the structures and with the way in which Muldoon played it as Minister of Finance. So you're tearing your hair out every day, but you were never bored. In the early 80s, New Zealand also faced the conflict and anger that came with the 1981 Springbok tour when New Zealand, despite international condemnation, maintained sporting contacts, in particular rugby, relationships with apartheid South Africa. This anger against the tour and what it represented resulted in weeks of protest and carnage across the country. Largely based around the matches played, this period still leaves many memories for Kiwis. It was a really shameful period of New Zealand's history. New Zealanders were lied to. The Commonwealth leaders were lied to. Um, it was quite violent. Uh, I personally was assaulted um, 
there were death threats and I had um, plain clothes detectives driving me around, one of whom almost got himself elected to the Otrahonga branch executive when he drove me there one day and went in in his suit. And somebody said, what's your name? I'll nominate you. Um, uh, it was a dreadful, dreadful period of time. The National Party policy was that they would not um, oppose visas. The Glen Eagles Agreement talk, talked about doing taking every possible step. The government never withdrew broadcasting services. It never withdrew tourist hotel accommodation. It never withdrew policing, all of which it could have done and still complied with its policy, and all of which it lied about to Commonwealth leaders and to the country. It was miserable. It was, I, I did not have a personal friend who was not out on the streets um, protesting. But then if you think that somebody like Ron Trotter, um, who was head of Fletcher Challenge, was also on the streets protesting, walking along with Ken Douglas, who was head of the FOL, this was a very broad base of New Zealanders on the streets. We've discussed it in the Michael Cox episodes, but it can never be understated how much power you can have when you're the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister. And that's what Robert Muldoon did in the 70s and 80s. But like many despots, the wheels started to fall off the government, and more seriously, off the country. And, and everything was going wrong. So the internal deficit continued to grow, I think, probably to the highest percentage of GDP uh, recorded, certainly in my lifetime at that point. Um, there were big surges in um, oil prices. We're just uh, going into the Iran hostage crisis. Uh, so the external deficit was huge. Um, you couldn't borrow probably below 18% for anything, anywhere. Uh, inflation was travelling in double figures. The, the, um, between the 800 million in agricultural subsidies and the now single largest uh, line entry of universal national superannuation for over 60, the margins for moving, unless you tackled, um, uh, for example, all the protection and got really stuck in around lifting all the kinds of import regulations and licenses that were required, unless you you got rid of the protection of the railways. I always remember this one poor man from Narawa here who'd got the egg contract to supply the Vittles store on the Auckland Harbour for incoming ships, who was told he had to put the eggs on the train because it was just over, at that point, 100 kilometres. And so he was not allowed to truck them, truck eggs from Narawa here to Auckland. I mean, this is the madness. It was completely mad. 
the the whole system was incredibly non-transparent and trying to track dollars or where costs should fall was in itself a major issue. And there was a significant group uh, in the backbench who had, you know, tried to ask all the obvious questions. Ian McLean would be an obvious member of that group um, for so long. And it was, it, Muldoon was never listening. And he wasn't consulting with his cabinet colleagues either. He, he effectively re refused to make significant changes which would have uh, increased unemployment more, even more. The only reason that unemployment figures weren't even larger was because we had a larger emigration than we had immigration. So more were leaving than were coming. And that was most people's way of coping with unemployment, leave the country. So yeah, it was bad right across the board. It was really bad. We all knew it was bad, but he was just making those decisions himself in the end. With disquiet amongst the ranks and the books not balancing, by 1984, Rob Muldoon would seize on Marilyn Waring's refusal to vote for certain bills and resignation from the National Party as a scapegoat to call an election. Dale Jones, Derek Quigley, Ruth Richardson crossed on the retrospective introduction of GST. Um, no, sorry, the retrospective introduction of a capital gains tax but Muldoon by that period, so that's the third term, 82 to 84, is pulling uh, Kirk and McDonnell now to the two independents who didn't get confirmed for the Labour Party and pulling Beetham and Knapp, who had no problem with a capital gains tax, of course. So I wasn't his problem on that. Um, I crossed more than 20 times, uh, several on national development legislation, 18 times on uh, the major revamp of employment legislation, which penalised women enormously. And then on Nuclear Free New Zealand, yeah. Um, but. No, he, he had much bigger problems with the people who wouldn't put up with his economics. Um, but because I'd crossed more than anybody else, you know, it was kind of an easy flag to fly. Yeah. And some accounts of the story, you have an apple. I do. How was the apple? The apple was great. Okay. The apple was wonderful. It was one of those really crunchy ones. And he, and it's very odd, you know, because one of the things I've noticed over the years is if I'm talking to somebody and I want them to pay attention, that I, I really don't like them eating an apple because it's loud, you know, and it's, it's, it doesn't seem to denote a great deal of respect. I picked the apple up on my way to the whip's office and he was already, 
you know, inebriated and he was slurring away and going on with his foul language. So I ate my apple. It was good. It was good. At the 1984 election, National would lose, but amongst it all, a woman who had been working for Marilyn would successfully stand for Waipa and win, one Catherine O'Regan. Less than a decade later, she would become a government minister. Marilyn worked hard with Catherine to support her campaign and offered advice and support, and Catherine thought the two had shaped one another. Marilyn wasn't done with changing things and would pursue economics as it turned out a key measure on a nation's productivity, GDP, largely ignored women. This investigation has led to a fascinating career with a great range of work coming out of it, starting with Counting for Nothing. Decades on from being our local MP, when I sat down with Marilyn at AUT on the North Shore in Auckland, apart from some back issues, she was still passionate, sharp and dedicated. And there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, It's a personal favourite of mine, uh, which broadcast in May 2019, Beyond the Politics and Activism. I just listen and are in awe of what she had to do and fight for. And if you were listening to that and thinking, hmm, I want to know more about Marilyn Waring, uh, she released a book back in 2019 called The Political Years, and that takes you through her time in Parliament and also includes uh, more depth on the Springbok tour. We'll be back next Monday with another episode of The Locals. Uh, It will be a brand new episode this time around with Carly Mercia from the New Zealand Drug Foundation. But until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Haere ra.
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.